Good morning, family. If you would please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is uh, sermon number three from the letter of 2 Corinthians. And for the benefit of those of you who are visiting with us, we've been making our way through this letter. I've given a, a lot of background information that I hope is helpful in the, in the big term of understanding the letter. And a couple of things just that you need to know. One is that this is the most personal of Paul's letters, um, where he opens his heart and his life. And we learn things about him that we would not know from any of the rest of the New Testament, um, including the great tensions that were between him and the church at Corinth during this time period, a church that he had helped to establish. And yet they had come through some very, very rough waters uh, up to this point. Uh, rough waters is we're going to see one of the men introduced this morning that caused some of the trouble there at Corinth with him. And then also some of the super apostles who will undermine Paul's ministry. And this whole letter is what is known as an apologetic letter, letter or a defense letter uh, defending his ministry because he understands if he loses the battle here, it's not just him as a, a as a pastor. It's just not him as a leader. It's him as an apostle that's being questioned. And for that reason, his authority is crucial uh, for the influence of the good on this church, because if there is not apostolic influence on this church, they're going to be left to paganism. They're going to be left to uh, rebels within the church. There's going to be they're going to be left and devastated. And so as we're going to see even this morning, Paul's greatest concern is not his own reputation, but the church of Jesus Christ. And so. Let's read together chapter 2, verses 5 down through 11. I initially had uh, hoped to get down through the end of the chapter, but uh, there's just too much richness in verses 12 to the end uh, to try to cover this week. So we'll, Lord willing, come back next week. Verses 5 down through verse 11. Paul writes, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to re reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, let's again pray. Lord, as we crack open this letter of ancient antiquity and over 2,000 years old, we just plead with you uh, that you would give us help to see its relevance to give us help to know how to care for the church of Christ in a way that brings about peace and which brings about your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as I've mentioned before, we're reading somebody else's news, somebody else's letter. We're right in the middle of this controversy. We're trying to both understand the controversy that Paul is dealing with and the problems within the church, but also draw out its own relevance to us and the principles that we can apply um, in our uh, particular church and time period. So what we have here is Paul uh, addressing for the first time the specific incident 
from his previous visit, and you'll remember that Paul has been here multiple times. We've seen that he's written multiple letters, uh, two of which we have in the New Testament, but more has gone on behind the scenes than what we have merely recorded uh, in these two letters. But Paul had made a previous visit there, and that visit had not gone well. As a matter of fact, as far as we can put it together, things were so upsetting and so cacophonous as he visited a church or probably a a series of house churches at the city of Corinth that it had grieved him so deeply. And he realized that if he pushed any harder, pushed any further, uh, pressed into it, um, it was going to cause even larger rifts that he wasn't actually able, going to be able to resolve this conflict um, during his time there. So he just abruptly leaves uh, contrary to his previous plan. So he, he just ups and packs and leaves because the fire is too hot. It's too difficult. There's too much controversy in the church. Not that he's escaping it, but he just realizes stirring the pot more when the heat is this hot is not going to help. He just needs to get out of the situation. So that's what he does. And so what he does is he leaves particularly a person who is unnamed. We don't have the person's name. We don't know exactly what this person said, but it seems to focus on a specific person who has, as we're going to see in a minute, some degree of influence and authority among the churches. Paul comes, this person begins to say things personally against Paul and has persuaded the churches already, these house churches in Corinth, have already persuaded them against Paul. He comes to try to respond and it is such a hotbed at this point that things get worse and worse. Uh, but this person is unnamed. The details are unmentioned, uh, both of which, though, the Corinthian church would have known very clearly. And I like what the commentator Garland says about this, Paul writing about it. Is Paul's goal is to bring healing, not to recount the events to prove how right he was. And so what we find is that after he leaves, he later writes a letter to address this man, his accusations, and to rebuke the church at believing this man against Paul and not giving Paul a fair uh, hand to be able to actually respond. He's able to be more effective by his distant writing of a letter rather than his personal presence in a meeting. And for that reason, the church by and large, has been persuaded back to Paul, and this man has publicly repented from what he said against Paul. And so what's interesting in this letter, Paul isn't you know, rubbing uh, this guy's nose in it. He's not even rubbing the church's nose in it. He's just simply referring to the issue without details and doesn't even name the person. So there's been reconciliation, though there's some things uh, left that need to be done. Now, at this point, as we ask the question, who is this man and what did he do? Most older commentators, because I think enough attention wasn't paid to what happens between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what happens with the visit and some of the details. A lot of people, and I know I for years read this passage, that this is the guy in 1 Corinthians who is committing adultery with his father's wife, his stepmother. And there's a number of reasons, as we're going to see in some of the details, I don't think it fits that scenario at all. That this isn't the repentant man that was put under church discipline, and now that is being lifted. But this is another scenario. I think Paul has already dealt with that man, probably in the letter between First and Second Corinthians or in a previous visit. But this is not that guy. At least I, I'm, I'm convinced, and most uh, modern commentators also agree, that the scenario doesn't seem to fit 
the man in First Corinthians. So what what is going on? What do we know of this here? Here's here's what we do know. Well, we can discern of this particular man's offense and the offender looks something like this. First of all, this man's sin was personally against Paul, not just the church in general, as opposed to the previous man in First Corinthians who was sleeping with his uh, father's wife, his stepmother, and Paul rebukes that and brings that man under discipline and, and encourages them uh, to put him and hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. This is something a man who particularly attacked Paul, his authority, made accusations against him, and persuaded at one point almost the majority of the church at Corinth that Paul was in the wrong and therefore should not be their preacher, should not be their apostle, and should not have influence within the church. So this actually undermined Paul's authority. That's what this, and again, that scenario doesn't fit the first guy in 1 Corinthians. So what we know is that this was a personal offense against Paul himself as a leader. Second, that the offense was based on a partial understanding of Paul's actions, that this man had taken some of what he saw Paul do or heard Paul say or read that Paul wrote and made use that to spin a web of an idea and of a story and of a narrative about Paul that was not true. And so he is basing this on a partial understanding and he persuades a, a good number of the church to believe him against Paul himself being present where Paul couldn't even get an opportunity to respond. And it was so heated in the midst of those meetings, Paul leaves. And by the way, his departure did not prove his guilt. It proved his wisdom. Him stepping out of the situation and not giving a response and leaving the situation until he could uh, address it in a better way. Uh, I'm sure this man probably said something like, well, you see, Paul didn't even stick around to stick up for himself. He doesn't even have a, a response for this. You see, I, I'm right. And everybody's sitting around going, well, you're right. Where did Paul go? If he was here, why doesn't he defend himself? If he's really innocent, then why doesn't he give it an answer? But whatever it was, it was based on a partial understanding or accusation of Paul's actions and words. Third, a good number of the church were persuaded. It wasn't just a, a, a minority of disgruntled people. This man had such influence that a good number in the church were persuaded so that Paul almost lost his entire apostolic influence in Corinth completely. And so it's really come down to a, a, a very pointed place um, after he left and after he writes this letter that he's going to lose all of his influence. And I, I think it's accurate to say after all is said and done, Paul had not done anything to do that influence, uh, to lose that influence. He had not sinned. He had not been disqualified. But the majority of the church at Corinth had been persuaded that Paul was in the wrong and was disqualified. Um, so uh, this man's influence was evident and the people's confidence in Paul's wrongness was pretty high. Number four, it had caused Paul such pain that he would leave the church and write a tearful letter calling for the church's repentance and support. And this is also one of the accusations when he goes away and writes the letter and articulates what exactly happened and what the accusations were and, and how he responds to them. 
There were people who probably, again, wouldn't buy that at first because, well, he can't even be here to defend himself. He's got to write a letter and he's got to give like a legal defense and all of this, some of them. But, but Paul's letter was tearful, but it led, that letter was persuasive and actually led to the church's repentance by and large. And, and from what we know of the letter, there's still a small contingency that are struggling, but this group who had been lost uh, from Paul had been brought back, and now he's writing to the, the letter to the majority of them who have accepted that he was wronged by this man, who have called this man to repentance, and this man is still there. He has repented, as we're going to see in a minute, uh, but th that Paul has won that influence back. And then the fifth thing we see here is that these accusations against Paul affected the whole church community. Um, it wasn't just a pocket of people, but it was the entire church that was almost lost uh, from Paul's influence uh, in this way. And then sixth and lastly, the man had sufficient influence within the church, which is why some people raise, some of the commentators raise the question that he may very well have been a church leader. That he, for someone, just for a common person to go around and start saying, well, Paul this, Paul that. But if he was a church leader, then it's very possible he could have influenced the majority of the church, especially when Paul departs. It may be for this reason that Paul writes in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders by his own experience, uh, be, uh, take care of the church of flock because there will be wolves from among yourselves. And there he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he's actually warning them that from when, within the leadership and the eldership of the church at Ephesus, he says, from among your own selves will rise up those who will take the flock after them, that what they will do is they will they will rebel against the, the properly established leadership and authority within the leadership, and they will take people off uh, with themselves. And that's apparently what Paul is, is himself uh, dealing with here. So that this man had sufficient influence within the church that he was believed, apart from Paul, getting even a fair hearing and an opportunity to give a personal response. It was so heated, he had to leave because he could not give an answer uh, in the midst of those who were accusing him. So you can imagine this man and his cohort standing up in public meetings, Paul trying to respond, Paul trying to be humble, and uh, being shut down again and again. So that, as far as we can tell, that is the painting of the general scenario that we're dealing with here. So let's then, given that background and that story and that history, uh, let's look at what Paul writes here. First five verses five through eight. First thing Paul talks about reaffirming and forgiving this man. So you can imagine if you were in the leader of a church in a church, if you're in the leadership and you have a, a ringleader who causes almost the entire church or the churches that you are involved with to rebel against you, to lose your influence, to lose your authority and to have a good conscience. And so say, I know I've not done anything to like warrant the loss of this influence, how potentially embittering that would be, how potentially frustrating and angering and wrathful that would make you. But listen to how Paul deals. And this just shows, as I've said, the grace of God in Paul throughout this letter of how he deals with problematic people makes me feel like a spiritual pygmy. But here's what he says in verse five. Now, if anyone has caused pain, speaking of this man, if anyone, a singular person, has caused pain, and the word pain here could be translated as you can see, sorrow, sadness, grief, 
or offense. It's offense or somebody that does something that causes grief and sadness. He says that that's what this person has done. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, I do think as Paul writes the letter, the previous letter, he is grieved. He is in tears. Certainly having false accusations and your reputation smeared across the church falsely would have caused him sorrow. I mean, I can't imagine Paul is the kind of guy who's like, well, so what? I don't care. I don't care what people think. No, well, we have a much more tender perspective of Paul in the scripture that he does care, that he does care what people think, that he does care that he's lost his influence, especially for these groups of Christians that he loves. He is sad and grieved over that. So I don't think he's saying, I, I don't feel anything. You might feel something, but I don't. But we could paraphrase a little bit by saying, if anyone's caused pain and sorrow and suffering in this matter, it's not merely to me, and it's really not about me, but rather my great concern is that in some measure, not to put it too severely, he says, he's hurt you all. And so Paul's, in one sense, relatively indifferent to his own reputation as it stands. It's his own reputation as it, as it stands to influence the church for good. And the fact that they had been persuaded by this man, that they had been deceived by this man, that they had believed this man, it had hurt the church and caused grief. And now, when Paul writes the previous letter, not only do they rebuke this man for his sin, but now they're in sorrow. How could we have believed him? How could we have been duped? Why didn't we give Paul a chance? Why didn't we give him an opportunity? Why didn't we really give him a fair hearing? We, we, sh we should know better than this. We're Christians and we're supposed to love one another and we're supposed to be willing to, to assume the best. And we just jumped on this man's bandwagon and went with him because of his reputation and because of, of his high standing. And, and Paul didn't even defend himself. And we thought that that was to his own failure. But actually that shows his wisdom. So he says, if anybody's given grief, caused pain, he's like, look, it ultimately, it's not about me. He says, it's the grief that he has brought about and caused for you. And so what they did, according to this letter and what he says here, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And so as far as we can piece it together, here's what happened. Paul writes the severe letter, the tearful letter. They come to their senses. They then turn on this guy and they put him under some form of church discipline or they rebuke him or they take him out of his leadership position. You were wrong. You, you skewed things. You did not give Paul a fair, uh, uh, fair hearing. You persuaded us to, to go against a man who is innocent on these matters. And what they do is in some way, and this is a very strong term in the Greek, it means literally discipline and punishment. And the majority of the church turned on this man and put him under some sort of punishment. They rebuked him publicly. They brought him before the church. They made him confess. They did something. And Paul says, look, at the end of the day, that's enough. Because what we're going to see is they wanted to apparently extend this punishment and make him really pay for this. And this, this is, you know, this is 
so much like that we are. We're so hesitant to do the right thing. And then once we get on board with doing the right thing, we go overboard with doing the right thing. And that's kind of what happens with the church here. Like they're, they're believing, they're believing this man, they're believing this man. When they realize they've been duped, they go after him. And man, when they go after him, they go after him and they're going to beat him down. And Paul's writing them to say, okay, enough, enough, let up off this man. And again, how many of us, if we were in Paul's shoes, we'd, we'd want this man prosecuted to the nth degree. We would want him to pay for the rest of his life. We would want him to hang his head in sorrow and shame. We would want him, when he walked into church, just to be always like this. And we'd be like, oh, come here, brother. And we'd be like, yeah, that's what you deserve for dissing me in this way. But Paul is showing the abounding grace of the gospel. He's like, y'all let up. Stop. You, you, you brought about punishment. He has repented. Now give him grace. And notice what he says here. For such a one, this punishment is uh, from the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. So this man who had caused Paul such difficulties, such problems, so much angst, relational division and brokenness, Paul's heart toward him is you as a church, I'm now commanding you to forgive him, cancel his debt, put it away. And now I want you to come around him and put your arms around him relationally and comfort this man and welcome him back into the fold. We don't see in Paul a vindictive spirit. We don't see in Paul the spirit of wrath and anger that when this man has stopped hurting the church, Paul wants this man brought back into the fold. He knows what grace is. He knows what the gospel's about. He knows what it is to be forgiven, and he knows what it is to forgive. And Paul, as a leader, says, y'all need to embrace him and bring him back in. And here's the reason. Because he's concerned about this man's soul. He is concerned about this man's soul. He says, my concern is this. If y'all don't comfort him, if y'all don't forgive him, he's going to live with such shame and embarrassment and sorrow that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That it's going to be like waves crashing over him of sorrow after sorrow. And he's going to come to church in shame. He's going to come to worship in, in, in guilt. He's going to come and not be able to look you all in the eyes Y'all need to know and comfort him in such a way that he's not overwhelmed with excessive sorrow, but he is overcome by the grace of God in your midst. And I just say, Paul, man, good for you, dude. <laughs> to have somebody be so influential against your reputation and your influence against the church and have that kind of gospel heart toward a man is truly remarkable. And so then he, he goes even further. He says, so here, here's what I'm asking of you. As, as, as your leader, as your apostle, as your shepherd, one of your shepherds, I beg you to do this thing. Reaffirm your love for him. Just as, as clearly and affirmatively as you did in rebuking him for his sin, for dividing the church and ruining, attempting to ruin Paul's reputation, he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Please do this. Do this on my behalf. Do this on behalf of the church. Do this on behalf of Christ. Reaffirm your love for him. And then in verse 9, we tell what Paul is really up to in this whole scenario. In verse 9. 
It's for the testing of the church. It's for the testing of the church. For this is why I wrote, and he's talking about the previous letter where he wrote them to point out this man's errors, to defend himself, and to rebuke this man for what he's done, and to call the church to repentance in believing this man without having a fair share of, of testimony from Paul himself. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And that's, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of terminology. It's like, how, how, would, you, how would you like your pastors to say something like that? You know, we're doing this to test you and see if you are obedient. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, we, we are not under law. We're under grace. I mean, you can't test us. He's like, but that's what I was doing. I was, I, was, I was seeing if you're really going to exercise the principles of the gospel. I'm, I was writing to you to call you to point out sin and how people were being dealt with and how reputations were being ruined. And this was a test to see if you were going to be obedient or if you were just going to go with the crowd and go with the flow and just go with what everybody else was doing. And so I wrote you to test you and know and see if you're going to be obedient to what God says. What are the ways to resolve conflict? What are the ways to accurately handle accusations against leaders? It's a test to see if we will do what the Bible says. And then he says this, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Like it's already done. You've already forgiven him and or, or begun that process. And you know what? I let it go. I, I forgive it. I've already forgiven. I have also forgiven and then we see in verse 10, the nature of Paul's forgiveness. He says, indeed, what I have forgiven already, he's already forgiven this man. If I've forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And so it's not just for his own sake he's forgiven. Like if he doesn't forgive this man, if he doesn't have a spirit of indisposition of forgiveness, he knows it's going to affect the whole church because he is modeling out what the gospel looks like. Like you sin against me. Or we sin against Christ, and what does he do with us? And that's a model. This man sinned against me. He turned the church against me. And therefore, Paul says, uh, in the presence of Christ, I've done this for your sake. I've shown you, I'm showing you an example of what genuine, heartfelt forgiveness for a man who sought to ruin me, Paul says. Uh, I did that for the church's sake. So you would know what forgiveness and what mercy looks like. And I've done this in the presence of Christ. And I think that that could mean a couple of different things. But one of it is one of them is that Paul is saying, I've, I've forgiven him in the presence of Christ, like with God as my witness, with Jesus knowing my heart is is I've, I've forgiven him. I've, I've put it away. I, I'm done. And I can say that before the presence of the living Christ who judges the, the living and the dead. And then finally, verse 11, Satan's work. He says, we do this and I have forgiven and the reason that we do this and not letting this man be swallowed up with sorrow for this horrible thing that he did is so that we would not be outwitted by Satan because the devil, as they say, is in the details. So the devil was in the details, whispering into this man's ear, who was whispering into the ears of others against Paul. And there was division and there was there were false accusations and there were uh, false assumptions and they were putting together of narratives about Paul and his life and why he did what he did and why he said what he said. That when you drew the conclusion of here's therefore our conclusion of Paul, it was all wrong. It, they had some of the details right, but when you put them together, they were wrong. 
And, he, and, and there's where the devil is in there accusing, and he is he's, uh, being a, an accuser of a brother. He is there uh, causing division within the body of Christ. And now they seem to be on the path of righteousness, but now, guess what? On the other side, Satan's also there. It's like, well, that, that didn't work, so let me get over here. And Satan's device in this case is to so overwhelm this man that he gives up hope and that they don't know how to show grace in the church and they become a church that's not even oriented toward the gospel anymore. They're oriented again toward law. They're oriented toward making sure people get their due. They're oriented toward making sure this man is punished. And then they, they lose the influence of the gospel itself. And so Satan is on each side of this road of the narrow and straight way of, of grace and forgiveness and saints and sinners on the one hand, causing a ruckus and dividing the church, but now on the other hand, having a church that won't forgive this man and include him back in. He says, so the reason I wrote these things was to do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so Paul is concerned about the work of Satan in the church in these various ways that they manifest themselves. And he says, what we can't do is be ignorant and just think because we're good Christian people, we always do the right thing or we always think the right thing or we always have the right opinion, but rather the devil's in there messing around with us. And where there's division, where there's sin, where there's unforgiveness, where these, these things exist, the devil is present in the church and for that, we have to not be outwitted by his designs. So that brings us to the application this week. I'm going to grab a drink of water here real quick. Which brings us to the application. And here's where, again, the application is tricky um, and difficult. Because if there's anything that's difficult to preach on, it's something like this passage or, for me, a passage like money. Because now, how am I going to apply this passage to our church? In the same way that when we get to the section about giving and, and great, uh, you know, generosity and things like that, somehow having a preacher preach about money always seems very self-serving. Like, I hate preaching about that. Uh, because it always sounds like, you know, uh, imperceptibly, uh, imperceptibly that, you know, well, he's really asking for a raise or they're having financial problems or he's concerned about his job or... There just could be so many things, and that's why I just don't like preaching on money. And this is another thing. This has to do with, with the issue of accusations against leaders and how to resolve conflict. And so this can come across as a very self-serving sounding sermon. Say that six times fast. Or as a personal, you know, uh, uh, personal agenda. Now, I've got some things about, you know, what have been, you know, so it sounds... So it's just the difficulty. So I'm putting that out there because I'm self-aware of it, that, that this can be used then to prop up my own reputation or my own whatever uh, or to, for self-indication or all the rest. So I'm very aware of that and sensitive, but I'm still, this is the passages before us. The principles are still here. And so uh, please assume the best that, that I'm preaching this because it's the next section in the letter, um, not because I have a, a personal agenda. So here are some things as far as application. While clearly leaders are not untouchable and do sin. Let me just start there. Leaders are not untouchable. Leaders who have accusations against them 
those accusations need not to be covered up. They need to be dealt with. Um, Leaders are not the apple of God's eye from which you can't touch. And if you do, you've touched the Lord's anointed, despite certain movements of the, of the church who have claimed that. It's just not the case that where there is concern, there needs to be voiced concern. So leaders are not untouchable. Pastors are not untouchable. And pastors, we do sin. I didn't put it here, but full stop. But while that is the case, accusation itself, even by a group of people we see from this passage, is not proof of the person's guilt or the leadership's guilt. We see that from this passage. This man had some very specific accusations against Paul, and he was wrong. This man had specific accusations that had some connectedness to true things in Paul's life, But when he put the narrative together and influenced this large group of people in these churches, the majority didn't make them right. Paul was still innocent of those particular charges. He was a man who was not untouchable. He was a man who continued to sin. But in regards to this, that the temptation is, well, there's a group of people who believe this. Therefore, there must be truth in it. It must be true. And we see that that's not that's not true. It's not true against Jesus. There were a lot of people. Well, you're not Jesus and leadership isn't Jesus. You're right. But here's an apostle who himself. So having a group or even an individual that's very uh, determined that they're right doesn't make it right. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons and a test of our obedience is. Will we do what the Bible says? And please look please, uh, at first Timothy chapter five where Paul actually is aware of this and is aware of the sin of leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, he lays out a basic um, paradigm for how to deal with leadership that is in sin in some way. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder. And so what we here see is that this isn't a rumor against an elder. This is actually... Something that an elder, that somebody has, wants to bring up a formal charge of sin. Like this is disqualifying. This is something that's so important, so potentially detrimental to the church, so potentially dangerous to the health of the church, that it's not just spoken of in private and then quietly snuck off with. Rather, it's of such a severity that it needs to be brought as a charge. And he says that that charge should not be admitted except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, and so, so here's, here's the scenario, is that that's what is needed to bring that charge. And so again, even if it's a group of two or three people or more, those charges need to be brought forward. And, and Paul is writing this to a church leader. The church leaders in the presence of the congregation need to hear those charges and make a judgment on those charges. What we don't find is a secret contingency who have become convinced and then run off. What we find are people who are of significant concern of the severity of sin in an elder or in a leadership that they bring those charges and those charges are dealt with. And and then the assumption in verse 20 is there will be against an elder cases in which he is actually going to be found in sin. And what does he say? Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin. So the 
the view is that there are some sins, even in an elder, that once he is addressed and held accountable and charged, that he's going to be given an opportunity as to whether he's going to persist in that sin or whether he's going to repent from that sin. But in the cases where there's someone who persists in that sin, which the two or three witnesses come, he's addressed by the elders um, as being in sin, uh, the other elders, the other church leadership. And if this one persists in sin, then there's to be this public rebuke. Verse 20, rebuke them in the presence of all. That elders to be brought up before the church and said, these are the charges against him. We as an elders, he's, he's persisting in the sin. And for this reason, we are rebuking him in the presence of all so that the rest, he says, may also stand in fear. And then Paul says to Timothy as a church leader, verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So in other words, you don't prejudge the scenario until the judgment time comes, till the evidence is put out, until all of the parties have had opportunity to speak. He says, don't, don't come to that scenario going, I already know what the case is. I mean, surely there couldn't be this many people who have these accusations that it not be true. So therefore, I'm just assuming guilty until proven, until proven innocent. He says, no, don't, don't prejudge. And he says, do nothing from partiality. Well, I just like this guy or I like these people or, you know, I, I think this person is maybe a better person of integrity than this one. It's, it's like it's not just about personal integrity. It's about what are the facts? And have the facts been rolled out and have the facts been brought out and put together um, and not partiality? Well, I just, you know, I just I don't see how this particular person bringing this charge could lie about this. That that's partiality. And so prejudging impartiality are not the determining factors is what are the facts. All right. So what we find then is leaders are not untouchable. The Bible gives us um, this process and it's a process that the Corinthian church didn't practice. This man and other people had accusations against Paul. He comes. There's a shouting match. Perhaps Paul's not able to give a response. Paul leaves, doesn't prove his guilt just proves he needs to get his evidence in another way. And by God's grace, that evidence gets in by way of the next letter and the people repent and they're sorrowful. But all of that could have been avoided had they followed this basic approach. What we also learned from this passage is that false accusations of church leadership not only hurts them, but it hurts the whole of the church. And here I am focusing on false accusations. Because there are true accusations and they have to be dealt with, just as we saw there in first first uh, Timothy. But here, particularly false accusations or partial accusations or assumptions or presuppositions hurt not only the leadership, but it it hurts the church as well. And we see that from this passage that the Corinthian church was hurt in its ability to discern, in its ability to love, in its ability to move forward. As long as there was this angst between them and Paul, his apostolic authority was going to be undermined. He would not be a help to them. And they were going to be open to false influence as long as they held these false accusations against him. And then lastly, under this, uh, this, on, on this card, it is the church's responsibility because Paul just doesn't come in and, and 
you know, zap this man for himself. He's like, I, I'm, I'm going to prove everybody right now. I'm back. I'm going to prove this man. And then he strikes him dumb. He's like, see, can't talk. Now watch this. I'm going to make his stick turn into a serpent. Boom. Uh, see? See, I'm right. Rather, he calls on the church to do the work of discipline. He's like, y'all know better than this. You know better whether to take this. And he writes this letter, which we're going to see later, causes them sorrow and grief. He rebukes them with tears. And they're broken over how they could be duped by this man against Paul. And so therefore, it's not just Paul's responsibility to confront this man, but Paul would have no influence, if you would, if you will, unless the church confronts the false accusations, calls him to bring him to light, calls in that context to give Paul a fair hearing, and they're responsible for not allowing Paul to have a, a fair hearing. And they're guilty of that, and they're responsible for that. So it's to call the offender to account as a test of obedience. And then lastly here, what we see is sorrow is a proper response to that confrontation. Sorrow is a proper response. When that man hears that he didn't bring this properly, he didn't confront Paul personally, these were things he had by hearsay, assembling it together, and these people who had gone and, and been influenced with him, sorrow for him was the proper response and for them of the confrontation. But what is needed for the gospel to go full circle is love, affirmation, and forgiveness. We have sinned, but we have also been reconciled. And that is ultimately the gospel hope. What we see is that Satan's schemes include both cover-up as well as overzealous punishment. But we see from this the hope that in the gospel, when there is, are things that are brought to light, when uh, real opportunities for conversation and doing the things biblically to bring someone to trial or to bring some accusations against somebody when it's done properly. It's an opportunity for repentance. It's an opportunity for redemption. It's an opportunity for sorrow. But when we shortchange the process itself and make our own individual judgments on these things, then we shortcut the gospel process itself. And then finally, forgiveness. And this is where I see Paul as such an amazing model and example. Forgiveness, both personal and corporate, is in the presence of Christ and for the good of the church. Um, as I've said, I said a week or I said two weeks ago, a lot, a lot of what we do at the church is not preventative. I mean, we do want to prevent sin, but sin is still going to happen. Sin is still going to happen in my life, in your life, in our marriages, in our families, in our church. Sin is still going to be present, but it's, it's not so much the absence of sin of what do we do and how do we respond to one another's failures. How do we respond in forgiveness? What, what gospel solutions are there? What does teaches, Jesus teach us, not just about holiness, but also about forgiveness that makes our church gospel-saturated, that makes us gospel-oriented, so that forgiveness is in the presence of Christ. I can let this go. This person has repented. This person, though they did great damage to the body of Christ, Paul says, and they've hurt you and they've caused sorrow, he says, I forgive them. Uh, I've forgiven them already. Now you forgive them because he's more concerned about the long term effects of this man's forgiveness and him not being swallowed up by Satan's desires 
Because if they don't forgive and they hold a grudge and they always hold them in suspicion, he said that's going to have a detrimental effect on the, 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 the nature and the atmosphere of the church going forward. And let me just close with this. For those desirous of leadership within the church, uh, of whatever rank, of whatever level, with whatever office or whatever we want to put it, do not expect to be a leader of any sort without also being accused. You just can't. Um, I've known a lot of pastors in my almost 30 years. I've known a lot, a lot of pastoral failures. I know men who have grieved grievously, uh, sinned grievously. I know men who are in prison because of things they've done as a pastor. So I'm, I'm not ignorant. I'm not ignorant of how bad it can be and how treacherous leadership can be. But at the same time, we have to have anyone who wants to be a leader has to learn to grow in love and forgiveness and mercy and to put away bitterness and to not take it personally and to do what we do for the sake of the church and not for the sake of our own reputations. That at the end of the day, we have to be responsible to walk with a good conscience before God because accusations, there's always going to be someone who says you don't love us enough, you don't do this enough, you don't study for your sermons enough, you're not spiritual enough, you're not this enough. There's always going to be because not people, and we hear it all the time, people are never 100% going to be in agreement. And we have to, if you have a desire for leadership, leadership isn't just about knowing and teaching the Bible. It's about these kind of things. And having a heart of disposition of people who have hurt you, people who have betrayed you, people who have made false accusations against you, and nevertheless, in the presence of Christ and with God as our witness, to love them anyway and to care for them for the sake and the good of their souls and for the sake and the good of the church itself. So we are not martyrs. We are not in some unusual circumstance that makes our job harder or more difficult or more attacked by Satan, but those things are certainly there. And we, uh, as leaders, and for those of you who aspire someday to be a leader of some sort of any kind of ministry, there are always going to be people who misread your communications. And if you're just a communicator itself, you're going to always have people that second guess you and take pieces of what you say and assemble them into something that you didn't intend. And that's why the channels have to stay open and we have to have those engagements as the body of Christ. So for those of you who de desire leadership, please keep that in mind because you will be betrayed. You will be hurt. You will be falsely accused. And the great challenge is seeking to pursue a good conscience before God and man um, as, as you bear those things and not take them personally. And uh, for, for me, Paul is the uh, next to Jesus, of course, is the exquisite example of a man who could bear all of that and still love. Um, so may God give us help. Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for your word. And these are just really, really practical matters. And again, it is it feels potentially self-serving or an attempt to self-justify by preaching these things. But they, they are what you have given us in our word in your word. We pray that our church would bear the marks of such a gospel community where um, assumptions and accusations against one another and leaders would not be easily and readily accepted, but 
uh, things that are searched out, questions asked, and Lord, we are we are all uh, fallen. We are all none of us are without sin, and so we pray for that kind of transparency and openness, vulnerability in the church that we might be healthy, that we might walk uh, in the way of the gospel. We do this in the presence of Jesus and for the good of the church.